Hello, and welcome to the Better Everyday Coaching Podcast. Today I'm joined by Fiona Murna to talk fitness. Hello Fiona, how are you? Good, thanks for having me on. Fiona is one of Ireland's most decorated players. Uh, she's been five times Irish Player of the Year. She was a key player in Ireland Women's 2019 European Championship victory. Uh, and she's done a lot of coaching over the years, primarily with DCU, Dublin City University, uh, and Jab with a Hook. However, Fiona's probably better known nowadays for her physical therapy and strength and conditioning business, Top Therapy. She's been working with lots of ultimate athletes, most notably Sarah Melvin in 2019 when she was European Player of the Year, Sam Murphy in 2022 when he was MVP of the EUCF final. This season she's working with Ranelagh again and also Alba. You can follow her on Instagram on at Fiona Myrna where she posts um, frequently with lots of good content that's relevant to ultimate players. Um, so I've deferred to Fiona personally um, on Fitness Matters on lots of teams for about a decade now. Um, so rather than writing about some of these on my blog, I brought Fiona on to discuss some of the questions I have and some of the issues I have with warm-ups and uh, fitness when people are talking about them um, or when I see them at tournaments. So very appropriately, we are going to start with the warm-up um, so we can get warm to these topics. Uh, so jump right in with the most difficult question of all, though I know you posted about this recently on Instagram. Uh, what would you define as the purpose of a warm-up? The purpose of a warm-up for me would be getting yourself physically prepared for the activity you're about to partake in. And so the complexity of that activity and the intensity are probably the most relevant factors to be thinking of before you are going into the warm-up and picking a warm-up. So obviously you think like this... Um, professionally now but from your experience playing for so many years what would you say a team's goal is with their warm-up like what I think the teams are thinking of yeah yeah Yeah. or before you started learning all this Mm. what what was your goal when you were warming up to the team what do you think the team was trying to achieve I think it was always injury prevention like we uh, that's the impression I got it was just that was what people thought the warm-up would prevent injuries and that was essentially the only focus for it and that's that's what I would say I would say my impression was how effective are worms at preventing injury (laughs) so um yeah they're not like there's no real proven way to warm up to definitely reduce injuries I mean there's too many factors that go into it for you to be able to really uh, tell whether a specific warm-up is working better or not you could say generally certain things like we have gotten a lot of people to move away from static stretching because we know studies show that you actually reduce your power output from static stretching so why would you do that before a performance task we know that then dynamic stretching is a little bit better so it's just like that quick impulse kind of through the muscle a quick stretch which is more similar to movement so um so that's a really good move towards that but in terms like your physical preparation your consistency over the days, weeks, months prior are really what's going to influence your injury likelihood or not the most. Okay, I think that makes sense. And that's probably very aligned with how I think of warm-ups, which I've never really seen how the few minutes before a game is going to really stop me getting injured. Um, so are there any mistakes that you think teams commonly make in their warm-ups? mistakes I think they potentially skip a good part in the middle between where you do your dynamic stretching and then you're sprinting at the end 
where you can really get a lot more out of kind of there's a good term like extensive plyometrics so just a little bit more where you're doing skips and jumps and side shuffles and just a little bit more kind of active dynamic work like that I think you can spend a lot more time on that and very little time on the dynamic stretching in proportion to them um, I'm not sure if all teams even include jumps in their warm-up so uh, that's where something could be improved in a lot of places Jumping's the most fun part of warm-up. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of jumping, um, so I know before I started deferring to you on all these fitness matters, I used to design obviously a lot of warm-ups for teams, including teams that you're on. Um, I love jumps. Um, well, one of the goals I was had, which was something I picked up from Mike Boyle's books, I think, um, was trying to use the warm-up throughout the season to try and affect sort of long-term Athleticism, mm-hmm. so like doing three-step jumping, so you would gradually like get all the reps in um, over the course of the season. Not three-step jump, you improve your fluidity, improve hopefully your jumping technique. Um, do you still think that's true? Is that still an approach you can take with a team warm-up? Yeah, so I think this is what FIFA tried to do with their ACL prevention model: is the idea of let's make them do a little bit of strength training before every session. So rather than uh, well, this is just more opinion, but rather than seeing the warm-up as acutely impacting their ability to reduce the injury in that session, I think it's more that because they're doing it regularly, they're getting the improvements that take place with those kind of strength exercises um, that they're not getting if they're not doing gym work outside of their sessions. So it's kind of meant to be for any sort of club session to or club team to use, and we don't expect every single sport to have all their players in the gym in between their training sessions. Um, and funny enough that you mentioned the whole Mike Boyle influence I want to bring up how you were actually the one that got me into Mike Boyle that got me into this career that then so I used to defer to you and now it's kind of changed um, and it's, uh, it's interesting that that's the way it went it worked out well for everyone <laughs> um, but yeah so someone like me I really just like warm-ups um, so I've never really believed in the, like you said the injury prevention aspect because uh, everybody felt that I was going to do anything but I think that sort of thinking made me want to warm up a lot more where it was like I can affect kind of my body long term by going through this uh, process um, so I think at least quite simply on to the next question which is like two things teams should have separate warm-ups for the training sessions and the tournaments yeah um, I would say that that would make a lot of sense because they're different goals. They're different. Every game is going to be different at a tournament as well compared to training sessions, which can feel a little bit more consistent. Um, the time of day is going to matter. The, pre- the fact that you just had a game, whether you did or not, or an hour before is going to matter. Whereas training sessions are usually isolated times of day. They're usually often weeknights as well. So for adult uh, trainings where they're coming from work and such, they, this is where I think that kind of slow movement pattern can be necessary and helpful at the start for people who have been sitting at a desk for eight plus hours a day. Um, so that's just uh, why you might actually get like a little bit slower into it. Whereas when people show up early at a tournament, they're moving around throwing for like an hour before maybe, well, depending on how early people want to get there. I know I like to get there quite early. And um, then they might be more limber coming into it anyway, fresher, having had a good night's sleep, ideally beforehand. 
mentally you want to be thinking about that as well so what's the energy like naturally in the team do you need to have a higher arousal state brought into the the warm-up or do you need to kind of wind people down a bit are they overhyped you need to do a little bit of both depending on like your mix of players so um i'd be thinking more psychological at tournaments as well and a little bit more maybe physical when it comes to trainings well i think at tournaments physical aspects is quite big mm. um i know there's a lot of feedback about windmill this year um, the rounds were shortened um, so just for anyone who hasn't been to windmill just listening to this um so Wimbledon's a three-day tournament where you play eight games. Sounds very reasonable, except the third day you play one game. So you play seven games in the other two days. Um, four, four games in one day, three games on another day. It can flip year to year which day you play the four games on. Um, I think obviously anyone that's trying to warm up like a full warm like you do before training on a day where you play four games or three games is crazy, I'd say. I would do, I mean, in my prison, thinking is like 15, 20 minute warm up, especially for a third and fourth game of the day, is loads. Like, you've already played two games in Frisbee, you've already warmed up. Why would you need to go to a full warm up again? Especially because they shortened rounds this year. So, I think there were 80 minute rounds total, or maybe 85 minutes. So, you were, yeah, you weren't breaking for very long. Um, you were sitting down for maybe 20, 25 minutes. So, it's not like you're getting really stiff or really cold um so yeah women is obviously an extreme example but yeah what do you think generally of like adapting your warm for a tournament like that should you do a longer warm to start the tournament then gradually reduce them or is it just play by year seeing how your team is going yeah i think with the warm-up as well what i guess i'll say is it doesn't have to mean just what you do without a disc so i certainly think of the warm-up as still including drills and throwing and anything like that so with that then I think starting the day well with making sure you're getting full range movements in so I definitely go for like deep like squats lunges um, and anything else that you are familiar with to get a lot of action through those joints and then after that it's going to depend on the weather a bit so like are you actually physically warm later on the day is it raining and um, then how tough the game is going to be going into it how stiff you're feeling from previous games how tough they were um so that's a little bit more like playing by ear but i think i would definitely go long to short as the day goes on so and long and kind of slower at the start of the day just to get people you know kind of a fresher feeling and just making sure that everything is moving well after that the body will hold on to a little bit of that kind of benefit from the first warm-up and the games that follow Cool. Um, I guess my other question on that it's similar, but obviously if you are doing, let's say, a, a 45-minute warm-up because you're standing warm for every game and you play four games in a day, like how much extra load are you adding mm-hmm. to all those players? Like Players probably aren't playing, like players aren't playing 45 minutes in a game unless their squad is tiny. So they're only probably going to play like 15, 20, 25 minutes, maybe. And you're adding all this extra time. I'm like, I'd rather take 25 minutes off that warm, 30 minutes off that warm, if I just have, like, across the whole day, what's that, like 90 minutes less mm. running for people, less activity for people. That seems a massive win in terms of injury prevention, rather than, I think, people warming up to prevent injuries. 
I'm not sure what you think about that. Yeah, this is the irony because you might be preparing more, but actually, if you remember, or if you realize, if you don't realize, that injuries happen the more tired you are, the more likely to happen. I mean, certain types, like non-contact ones. So any sort of um, ankle sprains are more likely to happen when you're tired. Hamstring strains, more likely to happen with accumulated fatigue. So if you're adding on that extra load, you're dead right, you're more likely to actually be tiring your players and increasing their chance of injury. This includes cool downs. Um, so there was a good podcast from, I think it was Science for Sports, where they were talking about how there isn't really good evidence for adding on a 20-minute cooldown, for example, afterwards, especially if you're adding on more running, for example, and you're literally just you're just adding more load. So it doesn't really make sense to do that. Um, so think about the overall volume of activity as well when you're considering injury prevention and warm-ups for injury prevention. Cool. We're going to talk a little bit about the cooldown at the end of the podcast because <laughs> right. I think it makes, makes sense. Um, Okay, um, so we had a question from Sunflow, um, who also writes a really good blog, sunflow.substack.com, uh, and he asks, uh, do you support each player doing the warmth that works best for them, or should a team warm as a team? I think that it's ideal if each player knows what they specifically need a little bit more of with their warm-up. I suggest they do it before the team warm-up, um, because, like we are not that far advanced in the sport that we have multiple staff to work with a team to do individual warm-ups, then you kind of, the onus is on the player. And so in order to not disrupt the team, like kind of vibes and energy by just not taking part in the team warm-up, I think it's a little bit better to just try and do it before or integrate it into the warm-up while they're doing it. So they're doing a specific type of lunge or jump or kind of whatever other footwork during the same warm-up. So um, that's possible to do as well if they know how to manage that. Cool. So then my philosophy of warm-ups has always been essentially to run a bare-bones warm-up, like to do the minimum possible in order to, like, if someone feels like, oh, I need to do 10 sprints before I train or I play because that's just the way my body feels. Like, I have to do it. Mm. I'm not going to make the whole team do 10 sprints just because three or four people feel like that's best for them or like long stretches as well some people obviously love those again I'm not going to make everyone do them because some people like me hate them and it really took me out of games trying to warm up and do those sort of stretches um so I think that can be a good way to balance it potentially is just make sure you build in that sort of time for players like you're going to do okay this is our eight minutes of dynamic warm or whatever it is and then the five minute break but if you need to use that five minute break to do something else use that five minute break to do something else yeah i'd agree with that um uh, especially again we bring in the psych- psychology component of it like the warm-up should make a player feel good about themselves and about their bodies and if it's not doing that it's not necessarily helping even if you think physically it makes sense yeah um i'm just this is kind of a tangent but i'm thinking back a long time ago 2010 where i think we probably both change our minds on warm so that um people of that age our age may know there was first ever on 23 tournament it was in florence it was in a heat wave in florence it was over 40 degrees some of the days ireland was not <laughs> coping very well with the heat i think we had six people go to hospital with heat stroke uh, over the course of the tournament um so i certainly learned pretty quickly that sticking to the plan of this it was a pretty short war by the standards of the time 30 or 40 minutes I think that became a 
three or four minute warm-up. You did some stretching indoors and then went out to the field the last possible second and did a little bit more uh, throwing and stuff outside. But um, yeah, that definitely definitely changed my mind on on how long a warm needed to be. And as you say, it was 40 degrees. I did not need to warm up my body at all. I needed to cool down my body as much as possible. If anything, running, doing extra sprints, anything like that would have been stupid, in my opinion. Yes, I remember that. And I remember the redheads survived pretty well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so with that, we were also doing warm ups indoors and still, you know, sweating buckets. And when I talk about warm ups, as I said earlier, it was with the disc. I don't, maybe we did do some stretching, but I just remember doing throwing um, and then maybe like a little bit of kind of dynamic uh, high knees on the spot and things like that. But it was mostly short, I think less than 15 minutes. And then you went out and you tried not to die on the pitch. So, um, yeah, that, that it's definitely the warmer it is, the less you need to do. And you need to think about your energy reserves and your core temperature. Cool. Um, kind of the reason I bring this up is because that was obviously a very unique situation. I don't think most of would let us play in those sort of temperatures anymore. Though, I don't know, EUC 2019 got pretty warm sometimes. Um, but yeah, we, we probably won't do that these days. Um, if you can hear noise in the background, that is our, our dog lying under the desk, snorting away. Um, but yeah, we talk about psychology a little bit. There's a couple of psychology things I want to touch on. One is, I think, part of the reason of these really long warms, the tournaments like Windmill or other tournaments with lots of games, people are very afraid of moving away from what feels like the default warm-up, the default length and default amount of stuff. Um, I think people are quite resistant to doing something new, even if someone like you is telling them that they don't need to do all this other stuff. I think people still have that fear, like, well, everyone has always done it this way. So we don't want to be the first to move, we want to feel safe moving away uh, to do something else. So have you kind of encountered any of that with the teams you worked with? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I think that there's a lot of fear around being hurt, uh, like in general. So changing what you do should, if you do have that fear, you can just do it gradually. So you don't want to do a first thing at a tournament and psych yourselves out. So you would want to try and do it at a training session where you're actually going to have a lighter session anyway, and then see how you get on and feel. And then if some people just still feel too uncomfortable because they're a little injury prone or they're nursing an injury at the time, but they're still able to play on it, then you can, again, let them individualize their warm-up a little bit more. But I do remember with Ranla, because I've been writing their warm-ups for the season, um, and it is just a standard one. They just repeat because I'm not there to coach it, and uh, it's just easier for them to run uh, a written one, essentially. But in the first year, the captain... Uh, slash coach was kind of not you obviously <laughs> but you were assistant coach more so uh was requesting like as long a warm-up as possible because that's what he loved and then but then other feedback was people hate warm-ups and they'd rather it was five minutes or less so in the first year I did do quite a really extensive one just to again make sure there was no fear actually behind the idea that they were missing anything and I guess a little bit to prove a point that you can do all these many jointed things, hit every muscle, target group, 
And you know what, guys? You're still just going to get hurt sometimes because you have holes in the ground in your training pitch because you're going to run into each other because you come back from a holiday of two weeks and you uh, just, you know, you're not ready for it and something goes. Uh, things happen, unfortunately. Um, then, so this year, I revised the warm-up and the new set of captains are, I think, happy out uh, to just do that shorter version. And then um, I haven't heard I haven't heard any complaints. I haven't heard that things are going much worse for them because of it. So that's kind of an example for you. Yeah, there's a real fear if you do, like, oh, you don't do an exercise that specifically targets your hamstrings and over in some sort of stretch, that, oh, you're definitely going to tear your hamstring or something. And it's, I understand, like, why you feel, it's very logical to feel if I don't do something that I can feel my hamstring in, my hamstring isn't going to be repaired, but can you just tell everyone that that's not true? <laughs> <laughs> so you do want to gradually expose it to higher intensities, but that doesn't mean a stretch. So it's if just because you can't feel your hamstrings directly working in something like a skip or a jump doesn't mean it's not working. We can, I can confirm that your hamstring is working in that. Once your leg hits the ground and it has to hold its balance or has to push through, your hamstring is working. So just these ways, everything has to work together a little bit better. And as I said, intensity is important. So if you're actually moving quickly, uh, rapidly, and just doing a few reps at a time, that's naturally going to warm you up better than if you're just doing like hamstring leg sweeps. Um, and that's it you know it's, you still want that gradual exposure and that's why people run laps and stuff it, it is the most direct way to prepare hamstrings calves etc for your running activity even though it's really boring <laughs> i mean if people are throwing for 10 minutes poor training or a poor game you're hitting a lot of mm. muscles there you're hitting a lot of movements there mm-hmm. so then to think like oh we forgot to do our quad stretch in the warm-up that's a bad thing now it's like i think you think you're okay yeah. You, you already use that leg a lot before you join this warm up. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's just the range of motion that might be different. So it's about thinking if you didn't pivot very far or wide, you'd be less warmed up than someone practicing their low releases, for example. So that does kind of become a little bit more relevant. But someone who then goes straight into 20 low releases in a row also then end up quite sore uh, because they've gone too rapidly into that deep range of motion and eccentric contraction and um, so that's again gradual exposure is the best way to approach all of this so gradually going into higher intensities as you go through but it can be quite quick like literally just every throw you go a tiny bit lower until you get to the 10th one which is your lowest one what's your favorite bit of any warm you've ever done and why is it the 3v2 <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> Yes, the 3v2 total is definitely my favourite. And I used this in Jabba recently and someone was like, why are we playing tag rugby? (laughs) No one else, everyone else is having fun. But um, so, yes, that's my answer. Will I explain the game? No, if people want more information, they can buy my book. And uh, it's, I think it's the first thing in there. Yeah, so games um, are definitely fun. Um, Where you aren't thinking about how your body is moving. That's ideal for the warm-up as well. Because if you're just task-focused, you're just going to feel better, really. Because you're just going to let your body fly. It's just, it's going to sort out the intensities for you. It's going to go as fast as it feels comfortable doing. And uh, then if you're... You might need to push yourself if you're actually being quite lazy or tired or, or you're sluggish and stuff. You might need to be like, I need to try a bit harder here. But otherwise, 
games will probably get you there a lot faster than someone telling you to move your leg in one way or another. Who oh, um just a final think me on the the psychology of worms. I think people, like I said, we were very attached to worms and have like a belief in them, which is probably not a good thing. Um, I definitely think like, you can't rely on a warm up because it's so long. You can't rely on a warm going perfectly for you to feel good going into a game mentally. Um, so I think a good example of this from my experience. So last year, Ranla at Euros. Um, when we played Mimcasters in the quarterfinal. It was first game of the day, and for the Rogers, had to go to the physio tent in the morning, right before the game. I think the physio, either was late or didn't actually show up or something. So he got to got to the pitch like after everyone done their warm, everyone was starting drills and stuff, and then I, we spent like 10 minutes strapping him up and rubbing DP and stuff on his back. Um, so he basically got none of the warm then, uh, and he went out, and I genuinely never seen Ferdy play that well. Uh, he was unbelievable in that game. It was a shame it wasn't filmed because obviously it was a great win for Ranala and Ferdy was absolutely incredible in that game. Um, the other example was Sarah Melvin who in 2019, again, European Player of the Year, won the key factors for Ireland in winning that. I don't think she did any more warm so after like the second day. Um, it was too warm. Um, just, couldn't, just couldn't cope. It was just too much extra load because obviously Sarah's going to be playing a lot of points during the game so it didn't really make sense to uh, to drive it I said so yeah there's lots of things that can happen in a tournament don't like don't attach psychological importance to how well your warm up goes because there's so many things that can go wrong yeah absolutely and I think you have to be like that with uh, tournaments full stop just so much can be outside of your control I just think if you can find your body feeling good if you feel just confident going into it if you think about how many times you don't warm up for pickup and it goes fine, <laughs> then like you'll kind of remember that your body will figure it out quickly enough. And again, just as long as you're physically warm. And if you don't have time, for whatever reason, put on layers. It's a very quick way. So have your Under Armour gear with you, a jumper underneath or whatever you need. If it is, if you are physically cold, uh, it's a smart way to enhance your, like obviously just increase your temperature, which is going to help everything else. Every time I go to um, any sporting event, any high-level sporting event, I always make sure to watch the warm-up, try to get there early if necessary to watch the warm-up. Um, and they don't really look like ultimate warm-ups. Uh, particularly, I think, in the intensity of what they're doing, particularly right before the game. Um, so they typically start a bit earlier. Uh, the team does mostly like similar to ultimate or dynamic warm-up. Um, little, little, uh, little movement stuff through uh, a tunnel of cones generally, and then they might go into some, like for soccer, just like some shooting, basketball, like a layup line or something. Roby's probably the only one I've watched where they kind of split into backs and forwards, and they kind of go through maybe a set play or two uh, for the game ahead. Um, but yeah, most sports don't seem to have this obsession with like we need to be running at 100% doing a drill with lots of shouting and stuff but right before the game um, with like some sort of fear that will wear off if you do it too far before the game um, which EUF I brought in the spirit circles before the, like, the spirit circle before the game I think it's probably helped move people's mindsets away from that where they're like you have to 
join us for a soccer 540 game. So you, some people do try to squeeze in a more warm after them, which is crazy, but uh, generally not. So, um, yeah. What do you think? I mean, obviously, for those minutes, uh, a bit of time saving because you're playing so many games in a day. We already talked about that. You probably don't need to. Um, but what do you think about the I think the way ultimate teams kind of feel that need to kind of hit 100% right as the game starts? Like, think that's needed? Are they going to lose anything by either not hitting 100% or by finishing like those sort of hard running things like 10 minutes before the game and then relaxing? Yeah, I don't think they have to be doing it right up until just before the game. I alluded to it a little bit in my post about warm-ups that I put up recently on Instagram and there is a nice little benefit to be had by ramping up to 100% but you need this transition phase of actually recovering from that. So like 6 to 10 minutes is actually a really good idea to put in after that kind of ramp up and then before you go into your activity. So that that's actually a better way to do it essentially. So you do want to get kind of the heart rate up at a, a good rate so that it's ready and it's not surprised when you get into the game and you actually have to get it ramped up for your points. But then after that, once it's done once, it'll find it easier the second time as per subsequent points. Okay. Um, well, that's great. Um, so I think that's enough on the warm up. Unless you have anything else you want to share before we take a break? Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Perfect. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Um, so we'll be back in 30 seconds. Thanks for listening to the Better Everyday Coaching Podcast. My book, Games for Coaching Ultimate Frisbee, is available either through ebook or paperback on Amazon and other suppliers, which you can find on bettereverydaycoaching.substack.com. Also in the latest posts on bettereverydaycoaching.substack.com, you can find a link to our new Discord where you can chat to players and coaches in Europe and around the world. Welcome back to the Better Everyday Coaching Podcast. We are still here with Fiona Myrna. Um, we talked about the war for a while and now we're just going to hit on some general fitness questions. Uh, starting with something I saw floating around in a number of forums over the last month, um, which is a question... They see if you had 10 hours a week to dedicate to ultimate related activities, including things like training, throwing, fitness, pickups, leagues, how would you budget it? And we're going to assume for this that the player in question is trying to become like a better player um, and that they have access to all these things. So obviously not every community is going to have leagues, not necessarily going to have a good pickup scene, not necessarily going to have great team training. Um, might not be able to afford gyms and so on but we're just going to assume you are in like ultimate paradise here where all these options are available to you um, and how you would spend your time so uh, very interested to get Fiona's take on this because mine's probably quite hard line and I'm interested to see how it compares yes okay I am interested to hear what you say hopefully you're giving an answer too but this one, I know you you did ask me this, um, or you just brought it up recently enough, and I find it a little bit difficult to answer. I think that it, for me, would depend a bit on the age of the person and kind of where they're at. But I'll try and be, as you said, pick a range, like someone who's trying to become competitive and they have the ability, and they're just on that upward trajectory. So they're not a beginner, but they, they're, they have a lot to learn maybe still. 
So with 10 hours a week, I would consider the most important thing is what you're doing with a disc in hand or kind of gameplay. So I would give at least six hours to any sort of like team training. So I think in terms of your, especially if you're trying to get on the first team of the squad or you're just trying to move up, then you want to make that about three to four hours a week. Let Russ settle in there. And uh, then you want like two hours can be more training or your leagues, games, pickup games, that sort of thing. I think it's useful as well to put in about one hour, divided whatever way you like, into personal skills that are because they're very, very difficult to train or for a coach to be able to tell you during a training session you need to work on this in this drill you can't really expect that to happen and there isn't always opportunity in every training plan so I think it's beneficial to know what weaknesses you have that you want to work on and what strengths you want to make stronger and do that in whatever environment works best for it so that sometimes might be solo work or it might be working with one or two others in a small group session or even up to three or four six whatever it might be and then or it might be applying it in a pickup game that's a decent enough level for what you're trying to work on. So you're challenged enough. Then I would pick like two 45 minute sessions in a week for kind of strength conditioning needs would be plenty. So about 90 minutes overall. So it might be even an hour here and a 30 minutes. Again, whatever way you divide it up is up to you. But I think two sessions is better than one. You could just do one, but um, you'll get a little bit more out of two. And then one hour of a complementary activity so like a different kind of sporting a different sport basically but not just any sport so like I wouldn't count golf <laughs> in that and I, <laughs> because you're not running and you're not problem solving in a way that applies to ultimate do you want to disagree with that I just think you can learn a lot of stuff about throwing from playing golf by the way yeah, I think Especially you'd have to. Day. Yeah, I think you'd have to really know what you're doing. Like, this is a person that's quite undeveloped in my head. Um, I mean, by all means, if you enjoy golf, go play golf. But I think something more like basketball, soccer, even tennis, with all the lateral movement and the physical preparation you'll get from that, the problem solving, the way you have to react off others is a big thing as well, which you don't do in golf. So um, that's what I'm recommending in that regard. And then about thirty minutes if I've done my maths right, um, about 30 minutes of watching games or kind of a training diary, filling in entries there, a little bit of the mental component. I think so many players are let down by their inner game. And I think if you work on that from early on, you'll be much better off in the long run. Cool. Um, so can you sum all that up quickly? Okay. Six hours of like playing ultimate divided between your team training and maybe pick up and league half and half or a little bit more towards your team training one hour of personal skills 30 minutes of the mental training 90 minutes strength conditioning one hour playing some other game sport okay um i think we're quite similar um so i would then three hours team training three hours leagues or pickups Two hours of skills, throwing primarily um, yourself, one hour fitness, one hour like watching frisbee or mental training or something like that. But 
probably watching Frisbee. Um, so I probably could include that in the examples for you. So you, you had that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would distinguish, like you put six hours into team training slash playing, I completely distinguish between a formal training structure and uh, playing in a non, like not in training basically. Um, obviously if you go to like one of my training sessions, it might be quite similar to mm-hmm. leagues or pickups and stuff because there'll be a lot of gameplay. That's not true for most environments. Um, and I think most people are very, really under, under experienced in just playing for the week. Um, I would definitely get people to just play a lot more. Um, yeah, two hours throwing, um, or other sort of skills by yourself would probably come to it in a minute. Mm-hmm. I would, yeah, I'd say a lot of what people do there is, is not great. Um, an hour of fitness, uh, an hour watching frisbee. Um, and there's not examples I saw were very heavily weighted towards fitness and stuff and it's probably the obviously the thing I want to obviously it's because you're here thing I want to delve into I put an hour you put 90 minutes in um, would you change that for an international level player uh, what I forgot to say actually was I would change it based on the time of year yeah, but that's not something so, I've talked about that no okay yeah. so we're talking about during season mm-hmm. because but this is why it's important. Or off season. But this is why it's important because yeah. in an off season, I do think you should put in a lot more time in the gym, and that the benefits you'll get from that will actually last quite a long time if you do like a good, at least eight weeks or up to twelve weeks, um, shift in the gym basically where you bias that towards more like sixty seventy percent of what you're doing, uh, because the most important thing is that you can play, that you are available to play. You can't get better if you can't play. And if you're spending too much time in the gym during the year because you're injured and hurt and you're trying to rehab all the time, that's not beneficial. So that's where I really think a strong off-season focus on that a little bit more helps. And then you maintain it, and this is where I put in the complementary activity because that'll help almost like a strength and conditioning session because you're going to be doing different kinds of movements but still useful for your physical preparation. So it's going to be maintaining your fitness but in, just in that different way so um you might like to see if i answered your question there or not <laughs> yeah i i still you said so like six or seven hours out of ten hours in the off season then for fitness stuff which i just i still completely disagree with that um in my experience i've, I've had a lot more people that are good athletically and not good at playing frisbee mm. than i have that are really good at playing frisbee but need work on their athleticism. I think the simplest thing to do is to work on your athleticism because you, you can do it indoors and you can do it by yourself, you can do it on, on your own schedule. Um, and as you know from what we went through with Team Ireland, my biggest problem, um, sorry with playing in Ireland, but I assume it's similar everywhere else, is that people just don't work on playing frisbee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they work a lot on being fitter. It's like what you said, like fitness maintains, fitness actually goes a lot quicker than your skills in my opinion like your fitness can go well obviously fitness can go immediately but um, if fitness will last a season or two basically you put a really good shift in but your skills will essentially last you forever if you really, really work hard on them um, so I'm not saying don't do fitness mm-hmm. um, almost saying that <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite saying it I'm just, obviously if your main attribute is being the fit is most close player on the pitch. It's probably something you do want to like get better and better and better. Mm-hmm. 
but for most for vast majority of various way I look fitness is it's like your entry ticket to different levels of the game like a certain level of fitness will make you a good club player next level of fitness can get you onto a national team next level of fitness can get you onto like a power line of national team next level of fitness um, you're talking about one of the best players on the continent or whatever um, but like the fitness is like your entry ticket to those levels but once you're there if you don't have the skills you're it's pointless mm-hmm. and I think a lot of players just don't have the skills um, it's a complicated game um, so yeah that's why I would go be quite hard on just going hard on playing uh, upskilling yourself and head for frisbee as much as possible yeah and when you said like 6 or 7 hours there because I realised I said 60-70% 5 hours is actually plenty so I'm going <laughs> to down that to 50% but I like 5 sessions in a week for a good off season basically which leaves so much time to play otherwise and to work on your skills um, and I think the thing if you can realise the more efficient you are with a disc as well, the less running you have to do. The cleverer you are on the pitch, the less running you have to do. So you kind of, by default, make yourself fitter if you're better at the sport too. Um, the other thing is when like this off-seasons have this really nice accumulative effect. So you, when you do a good one, you have a good in-season, you're still fit by the end, you're actually just going to be building on where you were from the last year and as you get older and as those add up after about three or four years you're really just you, you don't actually need as much to kind of maintain the problem is when people have to play catch-up because they they got into a kind of snowballing effect of just injury after injury because they never really were physically prepared enough or they just didn't complete their rehab well enough or they, they didn't get great guidance all the way to the end whatever the case is so that's a bit of an issue too but I would just say um, availability is really important. Where you play as well. So four years of college, I don't think anyone there needs to do extra strength and conditioning. So, but maybe we don't get enough playing exposure there as well. Um, That's um, what we talked about a few days ago um, about the NBA. So just everyone who doesn't watch NBA know it's been a big debate over the last decade or so um, about how much players play um, so players have increasingly started to be rested for more and more of the season like 82 game season the regular season in the NBA it's too many games for any human to play at a high level so quite sensibly uh, teams don't let their best players play that much um, but some people pushing back a little bit in the last year or two kind of pointing out that the players that play the least get injured the most and that maybe that's a direct correlation like your body their bodies aren't ready to play because they're not playing enough I think that's kind of similar to what I see that people do dedicate themselves to the gym for ultimate I think do it at the expense of playing and then they're not actually able to realise all the stuff they're doing in the gym because like they're never translating it into a game and then they get to the season and they actually have to run around and do all the stuff and like react to things mm-hmm. and then it's kind of pointless yeah well the most silly thing to do is to just do gym work and not run so you should be absolutely running at least at least twice a week in your off season as well and hitting the intensities you need for the in season there has been studies in um, or there was an argument in the paper about the hamstrings hamstring strains as well that in an effort to reduce them they were resting players more mm. I think it was soccer um, but um, but then they're finding of course then hamstring strains are actually going up overall pardon me sorry it was actually 
running them less in the preparatory season, so pre-season, but then they get a little bit more injury because they haven't been physically prepared at the high enough intensities for the match play. So that's just an error to try to avoid as much as possible. Cool. Um, so that's a good discussion. Um, obviously, we, we don't quite align. But I think we both align closer than a lot of the suggestions that I saw online anyway, which are a lot more focused on yeah, strength work, getting more more explosive. People love saying get more explosive. Mm-hmm. How easy is it to get more explosive? So, like, uh, it is a trainable attribute, but you need to be doing the right things um, and recognise, though, as well, there are certain people who just have it anatomically and it's harder to get with other people or you have to, you're relying on more muscular power rather than fascial elasticity. Very jealous of those people who just have that elastic quality in them um, and you just know it straight away. They don't, like Sarah Melvin, like she didn't touch a weight and she was the fast girl in Ireland. Like then she needed to do some strength training to reduce all her, her kind of niggles and injuries and knee pain and stuff like that. So that's where a facilitator being able to play and become the best in Europe. But uh, she did not need strength training to become more explosive. So uh, it just means faster off the ground is the way I would think of that word. Okay, I just I feel like people spend a lot of time chasing it. And it's not necessarily very realistic. You can make improvements, but you, if a lot of people, I don't know if they measure it. Like, who goes out and actually time, measures out accurately 40 metres, times themselves accurately, and does it every four to six weeks? It's, I think people base it on feeling a lot. So I have people come in and yes, often say to me, I feel faster. And I'm like, that's great psychologically. I'm not going to say anything against that. <laughs> but uh, do you actually know if you're faster? Um, feel isn't real. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I said, I spent a lot of time chasing explosiveness and I posted on my blog last week, I think, just some short, in my five short notes, if you haven't read it, um, just an excerpt from a book on the Phoenix Suns, 2007, we talked, Steve Nash was talking about his athleticism, um, so Steve Nash was MVP 2006, 2007 in the NBA, um, non-explosive athlete at all by NBA standards and he said like he felt though when he started moving and everyone started moving that he had athleticism there like he was good at it when everyone was in motion like seeing the channel seeing the traffic kind of getting people off balance through motion and stuff uh, and again when people talk about getting more athletic and ultimate I think they're only talking about like acceleration jumping height <laughs> Like explosiveness is kind of what people think of, and like explosiveness is really, really useful. Again, if you have it, exploit it. But there's so many other ways to get athletic mm. that aren't anything to do with explosiveness. And I just don't. I would never hear anyone talk about any of them. Yeah, that that's so true. I um one of the things that I try to coach for players, and I'm talking about when I'm coaching ultimate, is just that timing that people I just do not think of. Um, so timing off the catch and actually being set up in the right position and going at the right time, regardless of what your matchup is, generally it's very hard to catch up with someone who takes one or two steps ahead of you. Uh, they have to be quite significantly slower for you to actually make up the ground, get past them, be able to make a safe like a non-contact bid and get the D, um, or if it's a bad throw. So there is a lot more to be gained from finding out like what is your athletic profile? Like, what do you have to work with? 
rather than trying to be this perfect model of fast, fast, fast. And it's also if we use that again. Yeah, I think it's like a fund- fundamental misunderstanding of how ultimate is played a majority of time. Obviously, you have people think of all these static situations that we drill all the time and stuff. And like, yeah, you want your initiation cutters to be explosive because they probably need to get free when they're guarded quite tightly. But all your cutters don't need to have that. They need to be smart. They need to be able to see the blade. They need to be intelligent. They need to have some speed or something. But they don't need to like be able to just outsprint someone over 10 metres every single time. Um, okay, let's move on a bit because uh, we talked about that uh, all night. Um, so, yeah, we'll bring on to my pet peeve because it's related to the explosiveness stuff and how I see people spending their time um, when they're talking about it online or I've experienced. Um, so very specific exercises to try and get things like explosiveness are probably my pet peeve. So the ones that I've used in the past and now look back and possibly regret my time using things like agility ladders, very specific footwork for like turning, like we did jab step with Java very appropriately. And we drilled that, <laughs> drilled that a lot. And I want to be clear before we start talking about it, before I start criticizing it, is that I, I definitely improved doing that sort of stuff. I think you definitely improved. Mm. Loads of people in the club improved. Doesn't mean that it was a good use of time, which is something I just want to get across. It's like I'm quite critical of a lot of coaching practices, as you may or may not have picked up from um, my posting. Um, pretty much everything you do, everything that's conventionally done in ultimate does work. That's why people keep doing it because it does work. Um, my obsession always is because I come from a small community where people don't have that much time. The point of the ultimate is like I need to do stuff that's the most effective in that amount of time so I can't do something that's just okay I need to do something that's perfect um, so yeah back to the agility ladder and the jab step and stuff so yeah I just I guess I misunderstood at the time that I thought like if you practice those actions really precisely and got better at them that that would translate into ultimate like I'd just be able to like slice that action up mm-hmm. and then apply it and just pull it out whenever it was appropriate on the pitch I think I now understand that that's not really how things work um, because as you said earlier it's, you have to apply them based on like what you see what the situation is what the defender is doing and so on um, so it's not as simple as yeah, just practice this motion and like, your brain will all night just pull it out when, when, it, uh, when it sees fit when it sees fit so that's my pet peeve doing those really hyper specific exercises because I just don't think they're a very good use of time compared to doing other things so to playing frisbee uh, but I'm interested in what you think. Yeah, I think that what I recommend is that you were trying to do things that gave the athletes a more all-rounded approach to developing their athleticism for the game. But I think what you're describing is a little bit more in an S&C coach's kind of um, domain. So y- if you don't understand quite the nuances of how to do it, then you will be less effective and you're far better off putting it into context that you no works well with a disc essentially or even with a ball if you want to make it more of a game or a race uh, something like that and um, because these kind of exercises they definitely when you want to be specific it's because the person it has a deficit in the movement pattern for example so actually just today i was doing some slide shuffles in the gym and i realized my right foot was just not landing well and my left foot was doing a much better job so it just wasn't stiff on my right my ankle was clearly not comfortable so then i turned that into a more specific, very isolated focus for myself of how I want to land and hit into that foot. 
but that's not something you can do in team training. That's not something you can be expected to spot in individual players. So all that you want to do is actually make it as general and broad as possible so that if you're getting them to just hit a cone turn and run onto a disc, that's great. And you want to make the focus a lot more about um, being just really fast out of the turn. I do think we can train bad movement habits if we try and tell people how to move their limbs as well, which mm. is what I think you were alluding to a little bit with the jab step, telling people to turn with a high knee is probably slowing some people down because they're really actively thinking about how to lift that knee and then probably not even punching it hard into the ground, which is really what the point of it was, was actually to get up and down quickly. Um, so uh, that's just those, those little things are important to be aware of as coaches. If you want to like understand it better um get in touch with a, a kind of snc coach who can advise you a little bit more in that regard but feel free to keep it a little bit more general the isolated exercise is basically good for rehab or very specific uh, mechanical kind of deficits cool um yeah i guess well, the main problem is obviously is the application of as i said we definitely got better at those movements by doing them over and over again um, but when, you have, when you're trying to actually, like, what's the point of practicing a turn so you can get free on someone? But if you're practicing turning and there's no defender there, you're not actually necessarily going to make yourself better at it. Like, you're not getting feedback. You're not getting any feedback. You're not learning all the different ways to move your defender to shift their weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might not even need to do a job set because you've done such a good job of selling them one way. You can just turn slowly around and walk onto the disc or whatever it is. Um, to get to go out to another sport, um, just because I think it's slightly related. Um, so, uh, Karo Mitoma is a Japanese footballer, plays for the most fashionable team in the English Premier League at the moment, Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, so, he's a very fast dribbler of the ball, and what's really interesting about him, so I suspect he's class, uh, is that he wrote a thesis on dribbling. Mm. Um, so, this is brought up every single time he plays. Um, multiple times in the match UD and every single article I've ever written about him will mention his thesis on dribbling and he's fantastic at dribbling so obviously it makes sense that um, people wouldn't bring it up um, but yeah what his thesis explored and what it found us like the key to being a good dribbler essentially is that you can react to the defender's body it's nothing nothing to do with going out and practicing your foot speed or how to manipulate the ball better like you need to be able to do that but you're not going to be a good dribbler just because you can manipulate the ball really well. If you can't react to the defender and understand where the defender's body is going and how to move your body to go the other way, then you can't be a good dribbler, no matter how much you practice the skills individually. So you basically can't do it unless you are doing an opposed all the time um, or doing a pose most of the time. Um, so that's my little parable um, for yeah. practicing this sort of stuff. Well, I'll just add, like, that's the true definition of agility, we like to say. People think it's fast feet, but it's actually reacting to another player or what what is happening on the field. And the better you can react to that and then change your direction or whatever the case is, the better, the more agile you are. Okay, um, we've got a few more questions. Um, so I got a bunch of questions actually from Lucas on Instagram, all kind of on the same theme, which is... Um, Basically, how much, especially talking more about high level uh, here where we have big squads of players and very experienced players with different skill sets, it's like how much do you think, it's obviously not happy now, but do you think we will move more towards players with sort of different play styles 
I wouldn't really say different positions. I would say play styles. Um, like training differently, preparing their bodies differently for the season. I think that's going to be a thing. Uh, if you think about, like, say, the Belgian team this year, obviously Dan de Marais plays, like, every single point. Mm. He's very good at managing his energy. One of the best things about him is watch him um, on deep points. He just doesn't kind of plays like Messi plays mm-hmm. when the team has the ball. He just doesn't really move very much. And then he moves when he has to. Um, it's very, it's great to watch. Opposed uh, to something like Toby Dekran, who is incredibly explosive, great goal scorer. I think there's the two of them kind of three different play styles, three different energy levels. Um, so do you think people like that should like, train differently? So I think it's, I have thought about the odd time and I, nothing has compelled me to go down that route because I think there's much more to do before that point of specificity but as you say the sport is evolving and some players are like really preparing themselves very well and focused on sport and it's practically like a professional or like an amateur at the highest level and so with that I would not really change the strength work in the gym necessarily but the energy system development so your running sessions your cardio stuff uh, that would be where I would potentially target different things so with sprint athletes and I should just say track athletes their coaches will often give them quite different training loads per week because the recovery is different so that's where I'd be looking like how well do you recover from a certain amount of training load if you are under recovering and you feel tired and it's accumulating quite easily you need to do less and then if you're actually just, some of these people are just like, go, 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 six training sessions a week, no problem, give them to me. And great, like give, give it to them and just, you know, undulate it so it's at different intensities and you can go up and down. That's where I think the differences can be applied already. So with my athletes at the start of this year, I would have brought it up last year as well. I would have shown them like a calendar of how to moderate your training sessions from week to week to make sure you're getting the right kind of volume and intensities ideally like it's a little bit of a you have to figure it out as you go and then you might hit a really nice smooth pattern that you can always do but because life gets in the way sometimes there's little blips along the way and essentially it's like having um i actually borrowed it from um joel jameson um of like morpheus so it's a blue day for a really light kind of recovery day uh, green day for a moderate day, red day for higher intensity. And so you want to ha- figure out how many of those kind of red days can you have in a week? How many green, how many blue? And then how many times do you need to maybe have just a blue week overall every so often thrown in? So that's the sort of thing I think you can already apply, uh, but it, you'd have to be really be working, either do it yourself or try and work with someone individually. Again, I'm not sure how many teams these days actually have a strength and conditioning coach that is actively involved with the club. Like, I'm just mm. a distance coach for a roundup, for example. So, it depends. Yeah, I think, uh, I've mentioned Dan and Toby there. Um, the other pair that springs to mind is obviously you and Sarah Melbourne, um, which are more interesting, you think, what to me, because you play the same position for the team, essentially, but your workload on the pitch um, is very different. I think the way you trained was very different. Um, so we didn't have a team fitness plan for the Irish team in 2019. I'm happy that players go off and do what they need to do. That's part of the reason. Um, but obviously I needed you to play a lot more points than you started to play. Um, Sarah's obviously have a lot more of a, a fast twitch explosive uh, athlete. Um, 
So I wanted to save her her legs a bit more, and you got to play like seventy eight percent of points in the in the big games. Um, but I think you also both train like that, like you mm. push yourself harder than anyone else because obviously part of your brand as well that you need to you need to do. You can't be out, you can't be outworked by anyone on the team. But obviously you enjoy doing those long sessions. Um, if you're still doing them, even though you're no longer playing at uh, competitive high level ultimate. Uh, whereas Sarah obviously just likes doing the like agility stuff basically at the end yeah. of the season. She loves doing that stuff. And um, so I think that kind of maybe the sort of balance that you can see people do. Whereas like, you're not saying like, oh, you're a handler, so you're going to do this three day plan. It's just like, yeah, so like more like about your body type, more about your attributes. Okay. Kind of what suits your body best. Can you enhance that rather than just going through the same plan as everybody else? Yeah, that's what I think would be more to do with your body type than necessarily a position. I, I think that handlers play so differently as well, even one handler to another. Like some are flying around the place and never stop moving and others are walking up the pitch. So you, you want to go more specific to the body type. Cool. Um, so a couple more questions. Um, so, yeah, so it's one thing I noticed for EUC this year, obviously EUC and obviously the same prize for the World Championships as well is you play two games a day across a week but when you're preparing to play those tournaments you go into things like women which I already mentioned is incredibly intense lots of games in a very short span of time most teams will do weekend training camps where you're maybe training six seven or eight hours um maybe five or six hours in a day even um and obviously those training camps you only have your squad there generally so you're playing a lot um so is there anything you think people need to do? Like you're trying obviously to prepare for the tournament, uh, the big tournament where you might play 10, 15, 20 minutes a game. But you have to get through all this incredibly intense, compressed activity to do it. So like, can you actually effectively train for something like EUC with, with that in mind? Like you can't train... Just explosive. You can't be like, oh, I'm going to play every second or third point for my team at UC, so I'm going to train like that because your environment doesn't support it. Am I off base with that? Sorry, yeah. I think I was thinking of EUCF, so I was uh, initially. So you're basically saying like, so you only have one or two games a day, so it's much less, but yeah. you've got, otherwise you're training very differently for it. Um, yeah, so you can't, like if you are coaching, if you're trying to coach for the Irish team for EUC, for example, you can't be like, I'm going to f- get you focused on being really good to play mm-hmm. two games a day. I'm just going to focus on explosiveness because you don't need mm-hmm. the same amount of stamina stuff because they will all die at Whitmill and then you'll all be injured for the actual tournament. So yeah. you basically, in the case, you just basically have to train. You're basically training for Whitmill and your training camps and then hoping your explosiveness and stuff shines through the EUC. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing that much, that's where your explosiveness comes from, by the way, hmm. um, the most. No jump program or plyometric program specific is going to get you as springy and elastic as playing. Uh, there's way more jumping around and sprinting and change of directions are going to help your elasticity or explosiveness as well. So you're already training that by playing a lot. So I would definitely say like if you can survive those tournaments very well, you're already going to be set up well for EUC uh, once you're recovered well, as long as there's more than a couple of weeks in between them as well. Um, so I wouldn't be worried that you're kind of missing out on being better for an EUC 
by training that way. Um, I think you were, what I like to do with the off season, for example, is you want to kind of super maximally load. So you want to load more than you'll actually need for your season. So your body is prepared and it almost feels like a break <laughs> where it's easier going through that. So if you're prepared for more than what you need to be for a, a week-long tournament, you're, you should be pretty good. It depends on how good your team is as well because some games are just going to be at the same as at windmill. So you might actually have a couple of walkover games are pretty easy. And so it's not all the same for every person or every team. Um, and it depends on how big your squad is as well going in. It's a little difficult then to really predict all the variables to be able to be that specific, I think. Okay, interesting. Because I would have assumed that you would train differently. Like ideally you would train differently for something like UC where you're just not going to play that many points in a day. Like you would focus a lot less on maybe building up stam- stamina um, and sprint recovering things because like you won't need it because you're just not going to be playing the next point or for like 10 minutes after you play. So I think I'm a lot more into the kind of aerobic energy system development now because I feel like for health, it's actually really good. For recovery, it's mm. really good. So having more of that is going to help you recover more between games, between points in a, in a short space of time and a long space of time. So you're not going to, um, so I suppose there's two things. It, you're not going to be training more slow twitch fibers, for example, by doing a little bit more of the stamina work once you're doing it at the higher intensities, like the 70-80% tempos. So you don't need to be afraid that you're going to be slower than you would be otherwise. And if you have a little bit more in the tank to train, then go for it um, I think there's a nice way to build up into those week-long tournaments as well um, where you just increase your volume up until about like to five or six days of playing to prepare for that week-long tournament as well again you're going to be nearly prepared by doing like a two-hour session each day it's going to be very similar to a game every day so if you can get into that between your pickup your leagues and your club training it's a really um, nice way to balance or to get the same energy system development that you need there Okay, very interesting. Um, okay, we're going to get one last uh, topic here, question. Um, we'll try to keep it a bit shorter, but it's a big topic, um, so we'll see. Um, so, we, yeah, we talked a lot about fitness, strength and conditioning, which is one half of what you do, but obviously you're a physical therapist, um, so a lot of what you do is also deal with injuries from players um, and from general population, but we're only talking about ultimate today. Um, so I'm really going to ask me one question because obviously injuries is a huge topic by itself. Um, what's the major mistakes you see players make when they come into an injury and you work with them? You kind of give them an assessment and what to do. Why don't some players recover? My clients always recover. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think that, um, not not understanding is, is going to be the big thing. So not understanding what's happened and why they need to stick with a kind of plan for several weeks, if not like a couple of months, like maybe eight weeks. And they just think, because and I remember I was like this, so you just point to a place, there's pain there. What are the stretches? They always say stretches. Yeah, that I need to do that'll make the pain go away 
and they think it's just going to be a one session thing and that's it and then they can just go back and play as soon as the symptoms go probably the biggest thing is they think they can just go back and play as soon as the symptoms go um, and that's just not the case depending on the injury sometimes sometimes it is fine um, but more often than that you need a gradual exposure kind of like the warm-up <laughs> graded exposure but this is over a week or two maybe more of building up the intensity of what you're doing until the body is able to cope with those demands again so going back too soon not understanding that there's an actual uh, step-by-step process you should go through would be some major mistakes I, i'll probably think of more when this podcast ends you can put, them, <laughs> you can put them on your instagram but i thought you were i thought you were going to say that and i think it's everything i noticed um yeah from my perspective as a coach just to ask as well like quite often over the 15 years that I coached, players would come to a session and be like, oh, I'm not fully recovered from injury. I'm going to take part in mm-hmm. bits of training. Um, I don't really know what my actual question is here. That's always been a bit difficult to do with as a coach because you're just like, I don't know what you can and can't do. What do you think generally? Like, what should players do in that situation where like, they're not fully recovered? They probably know they can't do everything. What can they come back in training and do? Yeah, you see, they don't understand what's wrong. So they need to ask their physio. They probably haven't been to a physio. <laughs> or like if they went to one, it wasn't necessarily one that's used to bringing people back to sport. Not all physios are equal in that regard. And so they don't realise that it's not like um, just doing things at 70% is definitely going to be okay for them. It really depends on the issue at hand. You should be able to confidently run through a series of exercises and know what you can do. But a lot of people come into training sessions and are like, I'm just going to give it a go. I'm going to figure out when I get hurt. Okay, that was too much, (laughs) Um, which is not ideal. You want to feel very informed, not just from a theory point of view, but an actual practical point of view. What level are you able to play at and what things can you do and not do? For example, when Sam Murphy was recovering from his collarbone fracture at Euros this year, uh, we didn't clear him for laying out for the the couple of games that he got to take part in because there wasn't enough time to get those reps in. And so he wasn't allowed to lay out in the games. So <laughs> that was... Uh, I saw him uh, lay out in the warm-ups a few times. <laughs> yeah, I saw him in the warm-up uh, once and I gave it to him. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't more than once, was it? Well, he landed on his other side, but anyway, and it was very awkward looking. So that's why he was not cleared. Um, So those things, like you need to have physically exposed yourself, ideally, to the movements and know what you're uh, capable of doing. Yeah, um, I guess my final thing then, just to lead on from that, is obviously, that's a great example. I know you posted about, I think, Conor Hogan with his hamstring injury as well at, at EUC. Uh, obviously, all your clients are very lucky. As I said, in intro, you've been a high-level player for uh, 15 years. Um, you've played in all these international tournaments. You've been you've been at the highest level. You know what it's like. Coach a lot of teams at the high level. You know what it's like. You understand the game as well as anyone. And you're obviously also a top-class physio. Um, players don't always have the luxury of going to someone like you. Um, I think players are quite bad at explaining to physios what they need like they assume you go to physio and physio would be like okay you have a hamstring injury so it's going to take us long to recover sometimes players have four weeks to come back to something how should players like talk to their physios in order to help them help the physio understand what they need to do because 
Someone came to you the week before, say, Euros is next month, Ran Fair came to you. Yeah, a week before that, they want to play. You know they might not get to 100% for that tournament, but you might be able to do something for them to be able to get them through some of the games. But to go to another physio, they might not have the understanding unless you're very good at telling the physio mm. what they are. See, when we were younger, we went to a physical therapist in Dublin called Mike Carswell, mm. who is an ex-Leinster, um, might be an ex-South Africa player as well. He dealt with a lot of the Leinster rugby team. Um, his expertise was getting you back on the field <laughs> when your body wasn't ready to get back on the field. So he's great at that. Um, but yeah, so if you have any advice for players to be able to communicate with their physios and physical therapists, like what they actually need and not just here's a YouTube clip of Ultimate mm. as if the physio is going to be able to intuit from that mm-hmm. exactly what they need. I think like choose your physio wisely, like go on to their website or any social media account they might have and see do they work with athletes. If they work with athletes, they're going to understand quite a lot more than if you just Google physiotherapy and pick the one that's nearest to you without knowing if they work with mostly 70-year-old women or do they actually work with uh, athletes as well or maybe even exclusively. So if you look up sports physiotherapy, it would be ideal. Then if you want to describe it to them, just uh, telling them that you have to sprint at 100% quite often. There's change of direction and there's a lot of jumping as well. And don't forget to mention layouts. So you're going to be landing on your front. They're going to understand it quite quickly if they're used to working with other athletes. I quite enjoy listening to some clients that come in and tell me about the different positions they have to get into in whatever uh, activity it might be. So like recently, um, I had a picture up of um, someone who was doing like uh, silks so it's basically like acrobatic work of silk silks that hang down from the ceiling and he's doing ropes as well with it and straps and it's just um so pretty fun to see some of his videos that he brought in of himself which is also handy um and then just taking the time to learn what are the positions uh, that you need to get into if they're listening to you um describe that and they're asking more questions that's a really good sign and they'll uh, can be able to help you a lot better cool Okay, um, I think we wrap it up there. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, do you have anything you want to share? Your social media newsletter? Yeah, uh, so you said it at the start, but Fiona Myrna is my Instagram handle. I do have a mailing list and I think I'm kind of terrible that I generally just ask people who are booking in if they want to sign up to it, but I will make sure it's on my in my links as well on my profile and otherwise if you want to reach out you can email as well so fiona.myrna at top-therapy.com on my website i will also share like programs i have one coming up for the off season it's going to be in three four week blocks so if you only want to get a four week block at a time you can if you want the full 12 weeks then it'll be discounted and put all together i have to do a bit of overtime in the next few weeks to get all this prepped but it will be ready before the end of the month um, and it'll be on my social media and website perfect um and if you have any questions for myself or fiona uh, one of the ways you can get in contact with us is through the Better Everyday Coaching Discord. Um, so, yeah, we're both on that. You can find the link uh, on any of my latest posts on my Substack, bettereverydaycoaching.substack.com. Um, but, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks, Fiona, for, for joining, being the first guest on the podcast. And um, we hope we'll be back soon with more. Have a great weekend, everyone.